we're, we're studying in the book of Romans for the rest of the semester, particularly the 12th chapter of Romans. Uh, this guy named Paul who wrote Romans spent the first 11 chapters talking about how does God save us? How does he make us good with him? And then in Romans 12, he starts talking about, okay, now what are you supposed to do with that? How are you supposed to live as a follower of Jesus? And uh, tonight we're in Romans 12, we're going to be in verse 9. And uh, I want you to hearken back to your campus tour of Appalachian State. Uh, our ambassadors, many of whom are, are here and part of RUF, do a great job leading tours and, and giving the pitch for App State. I went to college at the Georgia Southern University. Never, first time I stepped foot on campus was on moving day because I didn't care because I didn't want to go to college. Um, but you probably took a tour. And uh, every campus that you visit has a different pitch for like why, why they're telling you you should come be part of their school. If you, if you toured Chapel Hill, maybe it was like you can be elite or a synonym for that could be condescending or, you know, um, <laughs> su- such and such. Um, just kidding. Love, love Chapel Hill. Um, but my understanding is, you know, like the pitch at Chapel Hill is a lot different than the, pit, the pitch at App. You know, it's more of, more of like a you on us. We don't necessarily need you. Maybe if you toured state, you know, a pitch could have been like, you'll have lots of time to study like while you're like on an hour long bus ride to class, um, you know, all the way across the gigantic campus. Um, at Georgia Southern, I'm pretty sure that I, I wasn't on the tour, but they made have said like, there's lots of trash cans to spit tobacco juice into on your way to, to class. Um, or that, that might have been Western, I'm not really sure. Um, just easy, easy targets. Uh, but what, part of what I love about App- Appalachian is that sort of the selling point and the reason why they're saying you should come to App State is to be part of the Appalachian family. You probably heard that on your tour. And, and it's very real that, that part of what makes Appalachian Appalachian is that it is a family environment. We want you to not just be a student, but to be part of the family. That's what we lead with. And I think if you were, it's a little bit silly to say, but if you were taking a tour of like, what does it mean to be in the church or to follow Jesus, it would kind of be the same thing. That when you come to follow the Lord Jesus and you become part of his people, you're becoming part of a family. So no matter where you're coming from tonight, I think it's worth considering what does that community look like? What would it be like to be part of that family? Because we all want to live lives that are authentic and genuine and full of love. And I think that we're really presented with that here. So we're going to read in Romans 12. Um, I'm going to read down. We're going to, we're, we're going to be focusing on verses 9 through 13. But I'm going, to read, I'm going to start in verse 1 just to sort of remind us where we are. This is the word of the Lord. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And this is where we're going to focus here. Let love be genuine. 
Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. It's the word of the living God. I'm going to pray and ask his blessing on him. Uh, Father, we thank you that uh, you uh, are the creator of the world and the creator of us all. And that means that intrinsically at our base level, yes, we have dignity. And yes, we are really the same. And Lord, we come with the, the same need, which is to know you. And Lord, uh, we thank you that when, that when you save a person in Jesus, you don't just save us as an individual, but you draw us into a, a body, a new family. And Lord, we just ask that you would teach us tonight what that looks like for us to meaningfully love one another in that family. Lord, we, we want to do that. We want to be people who love. So Lord, teach us how to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So God's people are a family, and every family has its own distinctive ways of doing things. When I uh, married my wife, she's from central Pennsylvania, the Amishy part, and um, I I started to notice that every time we had a meal with our family, they had applesauce on the table, and it's just like a condiment. It's just like every meal besides breakfast, there's just applesauce on the table. It's like at the end, you just put a little on. And you eat it. And I grew up in Georgia, and we just don't eat applesauce like that. Um, and, you know, so there's just ways, things that you learn. You learn some of those things. But what's most important when you come into a new family is, is really asking, how do I love these people in this family? Because they are different than me. Uh, it's going to require something of me. And that's uh, what the, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this book to the, to the church in Rome, that's what he was worried about. And he starts off this thing by saying, let love be genuine. And what he's saying is your love for one another, this is written to Christian people on how to interact with other Christian people. He says, don't just love them, other people like as a sentiment or as a feeling or in theory or when you're up in front of people or in a group, but actually meaningfully love people in action and in substance. Uh, last Wednesday, a week ago today, was the 50th anniversary of the, the murder of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And uh, we, we, we miss a lot of his call, I think, um, when, we, when we think of him and we remember back on him. Um, and, I, and in many ways, we, we miss part of the reason why he was murdered is because he was, had a strong call um, to whites, especially in the South and especially in the church. And uh, his call was really the same, which was, when you say you love somebody, you actually have to love them. You can't just say you feel this way, but it actually has to be meaningful and substantial. And when he was locked up in a jail in Birmingham, he wrote a letter, and he said this. He says, I've been so greatly disappointed with the white church and its leadership. I've watched white churchmen stand on the sidelines and mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. And that's because the white church was, was trying to justify our failure to act in that moment in the civil rights movement. And really his call and Paul's call to us and really God's call to us in this letter, whether it's the wider church responding to what's going on in the world or whether it's just you interacting with another Christian person if you're a Christian person is the same, is that how do you love this person genuinely, practically, meaningful, and meaningfully and not just 
in sentiment. And the, really what I want to do is I want to explore three things from this passage on how we love each other. That we have to love each other in, in, in thought, we have to love each other in word, and we have to love each other in deed. Those three ways are the ways that we love each other. And the first way is that we love each other in thought. If you look back at the passage in verse 9 and 10, it says, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And that starts with how we think about brothers and sisters in Christ. It starts with our thoughts. Because our thoughts are so constant in our minds and in our heart. They're always running, kind of like, you know, a Harry Potter like movie marathon on TCM. You know, it's like it's always going. Our thoughts are always running in our minds. And we have to start there. And what, what God's telling us here is we have to allow our thoughts, how we think about brothers and sisters, to be informed by an actual relationship with that person and not on what we automatically assume about them or what we can piece together about them. And what that means is, is that you and I always come to a relationship with someone else as a learner, as someone who is curious about who that other person actually is. And we must take the time to study each other, to really to learn each other and to, to, to hold our thoughts accountable to what we actually are observing from one another and not what we assume. That means that we listen to these stories of our brothers and sisters. We listen to, to their pain, to their joy, their dreams. We, We are aware of their gifts and their shortcomings. And when Paul says, abhor what is evil, like throw off everything that's evil and hold fast to what is good, we have to know somebody well enough to know what is the evil that they have interacted with, they've suffered from or taken part in. And we have to know what, what, how has God been working good in their life. If we're going to hold on to the good things and throw out the evil, we have to know what's going on with other people. And my question, as we sort of move into this time, is, are, we, are you allowing yourself to be surprised by the people that you know? Or do you assume that you've already kind of figured out who they are? We have to learn each other. We have to listen to each other. We have to allow our thoughts to be informed by our relationship with others. And along with that is that we have to, in grace, allow other people to actually learn us, to know who we are, to get to know us. We have to give grace and in most of the time, forgiveness to our brothers and sisters that are trying to learn us. One of my favorite scenes from The Office is on season three, Jim comes back to work um, at uh, Scranton. Well, I want to say Wilkesbury, but it's obviously not Wilkesbury, it's Scranton. Thank you, Sam. Um, the Scranton branch, and uh, he's dating Karen, right? And, and uh, everyone's like, ugh. But Karen is so cool, man. Um, yeah, and. Uh, there's this episode where they're having a party, and, and Pam is very hurt, and she's sad, and she's up, and she's crying by herself on a bench, and Dwight comes up, and he sees her crying, and he's real awkward, and he takes off his jacket, you know, like he's going to put it on her shoulders, but then he ties it around his waist, and he's like, ooh, it's hot in here, and, uh, and then he sits down next to her, and you can tell he genuinely is trying to like love and care for Pam, and he, he sits down, and he puts his arm around her shoulder, and he goes... He goes, you must be PMSing pretty hard, huh? Uh, Because he's completely clueless as to Pam's experience, right? 
But there's a sense it's obvious that he's genuine, that genuinely cares, and he's just completely super ignorant as a person. And no matter who we are, when, when we're, op- we're allowing ourselves to be open to someone to learn us and learn our story, there is a degree of forgiveness and grace that has to go along with that. And, and, and I'll say this, I'll, I'll try to be vulnerable with you. Um, as a, a white man, uh, I have had to be and had the privilege to be taught by many women and folks of color, brothers and sisters of color, and they have had to endure much of my ignorance um, in love. And, and those brothers and sisters, um, and, and, you know, the, the main uh, one of those is my wife, uh, who's a woman that, you know, live with and she said the deal. She used to tell me it's okay, your brain's not finished developing, you know. Um, <laughs> it, those men and women didn't didn't just like act like my ignorance wasn't there. They didn't pretend like, oh it's okay, I won't worry about his ignorance. It wasn't cheap. They recognized it was there, but they chose to forgive me and to give grace and to work with me. They called me to account. Um, but they worked with me and didn't give up on me because, because grace isn't cheap. The the term grace means something that is undeserved. When you get something that you didn't deserve. And uh, we follow that pattern with our brothers and sisters because that is the pattern that the Lord Jesus has laid down for us. Who, to bring us into knowing him, laid aside everything. It cost him everything because Jesus extends us grace. He gave up his life so that we could live. And we follow that pattern as we let brothers and sisters learn about us even when they may jump to conclusions about us, we give them grace and we give them truth. My question for you is, are you, no matter who you are, are you giving grace enough for other people to actually get to know you? Because I, I get that it's understandable to hold back parts of you because you think, well, I know how they're going to respond already. Um, it's a challenge uh, for us. Because, look, most of the grace that I've received from people that I was ignorant to their experience... They've extended me grace that I will never know about. You know what I'm saying? We tend to think, oh, I'll extend you grace if one day you're going to realize it and then like, come to thank me for it. Um, most of what I've received and probably most of what you have received is people saying, I'm going to forgive you and I don't have to call you to account for that later because I can actually go to God with that because I'm living my life unto him. In, in verse 11, Paul says, Don't be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. And what he's saying is, what you're doing, the way that you're loving this person next to you, is actually an act of service to God. And so how we treat them is really, in a way, just something that is a result of how we are loving God. Um, And what that looks like, I think chiefly, is being skeptical of your own motives. And not being skeptical of the thoughts and motives of the person that you're interacting with. And that is really, really, really hard. Mm-hmm. When we come to the person and say, I'm not going to assume I know your motives, but I'm going to assume that my motives aren't perfect mm-hmm. here. Uh, I, I heard a story uh, maybe a year ago from a pastor friend of mine. He pastors a church, and one of the, the leaders in his church was praying, and he prayed a fairly innocuous-sounding prayer. It was, some, it was like around the election, and he said, like, Lord, uh, help us to not want to make uh, America great again, but to want to make the name of Jesus great again, or something like that. It wasn't like some knock on trying. It was just like, you know, just like, hey, help us be focused on you. And he got a letter from a guy in the church that said, me and about five other families are going to leave if we hear something like that again. 
in our church, and you guys may have experienced stuff like this. And what the pastor said to me about that, he was totally chill about it. Um, he just goes, well, I know that that, that guy wasn't praying to Jesus. The guy sitting out in the, in the pew, and I was like, why do, you, why do you say that? He said, well, because if he was like actually praying to Jesus and he heard that, he wouldn't have assumed the motives behind that prayer. He would have said, oh, maybe he should have said it differently, but I'm going to Jesus with this prayer, and he's my brother in Christ, and we're, we're good. We can move past that. In a sense, how we're thinking about our brothers and sisters is a direct result of our relationship to Jesus, the one who accepts us by his grace. And so the call for us here is really in verse 12 when, when Paul says, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. It's hard to relate with other people, especially when they don't understand you and you don't understand them. But that's why he says, Rejoice in in hope. You can be hopeful for that relationship. Be patient when it's really challenging and be constant in prayer. Because our culture you know, tends to use outrage as an excuse to not love. And, and God says that's totally the opposite of who we are in Jesus. Because you know, the Lord Jesus, he, had tw- he chose 12 friends for himself that he spent three close years with. Doing ministry, living with them, eating with them every day. And each of those friends, who we call the disciples, failed him in some significant way. They each left him in the end. But there was one, and his name was Judas. And he was as close to Jesus as any of the other twelve. And in the end, he sold, he betrayed Jesus and sold him to the Roman authorities for 30 pieces of silver. He actually betrayed him by giving him a kiss so the Roman authorities would know who to take. But throughout those three years, Jesus was deeply aware of Judas's motives. He actually could put the pieces to the puzzle together correctly. We think we can connect the dots on what other people are thinking and why they do the things they do, and we, we, we just can't. But Jesus could put all the dots perfectly together on who Judas was and what he wanted. Yet he was always a brother to him. He gave him the same opportunities to succeed. He continued to think well of him. He shared in the love and success of Jesus' ministry. And if you're here tonight and you know Jesus, the same is absolutely true of you. That Jesus knows your motivations. And he knows that most of them are bad. (laughs) Uh, He knows that most of them are to get something that we love that's not God. To be thought well of. To gain something. To look a certain way. He knows all that. And yet he is still a kind brother to you. He's still brotherly to you. He still crowns you with honor and thinks well of you intentionally. And that's hard. And that was true of Jesus who, like I said, connected all the dots perfectly. And so we allow ourselves to learn and to give grace because we just don't know why people do the things that they do. And it harms them to assume and it harms us. And I'm going to tell you, I spend a lot of time on that because that's hard work. That's not just something that happens. That's something that you actually have to begin to train yourself. How do I think about this brother or sister? And so I spend a lot of time on there because they really set up, that's how we love each other in thought or part of how we love each other in thought. How do we love each other in words? How do our words, how are our words acts of love for our brothers and sisters? There in verse 10, really... The whole reason I wanted to even preach through Romans 12 is because in verse 10, it just, Paul says, outdo one another in showing honor. And that to me is just so mind-boggling and so challenging, but at the same time, so beautiful 
that I just can't get it out of my head and out of my heart. Uh, we live in a deeply competitive culture, you know. It's actually so competitive that we forget that it's competitive. We forget that, like, social media and, and formals, you know, and weddings, they're all, like, competitions <laughs> for us, you know. When we go, we're constantly comparing ourselves to those around us. But the, the competition that God gives us in this passage is really amazing. He says, come in first at showing honor to brothers and sisters. Outdo one another in showing honor. And that starts with how we think, but it flows directly into how we speak to each other and how we speak about each other, even when those people aren't around. One of the sharpest weapons, and I, don't, I mean, I don't have to tell anybody in the room that this is the case. One of the sharpest weapons that the enemy has is gossip. It's that thing when we, where we share something that maybe isn't ours to share because we want to be perceived as being in the know. Um, or we assume that we know, again, why someone did a certain thing or what the context was that they did that. And so then we feel comfortable casting a judgment to others. And um, I, I need prayer more than anybody in this room. This has been a constant source of failure for me, more than I can bear to admit, and some of you, especially those that I've known for like five years, like Luke and Olivia and Garrett, and you know, like you guys know that. Um, but we usually justify that pain that we cause in, in gossip by assuming again that we can connect the dots, that we know what's going on, and we don't. But Jesus gives us a better way. Jesus says, "What I want you to do instead of causing pain with those words." is I want you to show honor to one another by how you speak. You have the opportunity to give life to another human being in their soul simply by speaking to them. And that's because God created you in his image, and God created everything by speaking. In the beginning, God said, let there be light, right? Let there be dry land. He just spoke and it caused life. And we bear that same gift, albeit in a smaller way, to give life to another, to affirm and to encourage someone, to challenge someone, and in a sense to call them out on something without leaving or without casting judgment, in love and with a smile and with an arm around to say, I see this. Can I share this with you? Because I think we all know one of, the, one of the most beautiful sights is when there's a group of folks and they're tearing someone down that's not there. And then someone steps in and they don't go like, hey, guys, let's stop. You know, they just go, you know what I really like about that person? And it's like, literally, it's like a, this burst of sunshine like, comes in. You know? And it's like the people feel bad that we're talking about. It's not even like they feel bad. They're just like, that's more beautiful. I'm more drawn to, to, to that thing. Because the point here isn't, like, feel bad about your gossip and, har- and hurtful words, and then, like, you know, you'll be closer to Jesus. Um, the point here is that think about the beauty that your words can bring and the life they can bring. It's like a drink of cool water in a desert of competition and, 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 and gossip and, and judgment. Because what, what God is saying here is if you're a Christian and this other person is a Christian, this is your brother or sister. This is someone that the Bible says is more deeply connected to you than your own blood family. Um, it, is, it is on us to care 
for them. Uh, the other night, I came into my bedroom, and uh, my wife had my phone, which is unusual. <laughs> and uh, I was like, what are you doing? You know, because you have a phone, last I checked. And because uh, I'm a comedian, like, what are you, what are you looking at? Um, and she was, re- again, she was reading my text messages, which was the first time that, that I, I understand that this has happened. And uh, so I was immediately like, you know, I'm like, I, I mean, I didn't think I had anything to hide. But then you start thinking like, oh, my gosh, what am I, what am I texting about? Those are still like the last 30 people that I texted. And it's like probably 20 of them are like, hey, can we meet this weekend? I'm like, no. And... Um, <laughs> And, uh, like, I want to, but my kids literally have worms in their butt right now. Anyway, that's in there. Um, it's zero, zero, zero. Just to get past that butt worm thing. Okay, good. Um, so she's reading my text, and I'm like, sweat, I'm, like, sweating bullets. And you know what she said? She just said, Chris, you're a really good friend. And I was like, thank you. You know, I was the most insecure. She's like looking into my stuff, you know what I'm saying? And she just said, Chris, you're, you're a good friend. And our words have the ability to give life. And just think about the words that Jesus spoke to his friends. The affirmation that he gave, again, even to Judas. Um, he called his disciple his family. His disciples his family. Even Judas. And he calls you his family. And actually one of Jesus' jobs now that he's gone to the cross and died and He's been resurrected from the dead, and he's gone up to be with God the Father. The, the, the Bible says one of Jesus' main jobs is to intercede for you. And that means that he sits next to God the Father and tells God the Father what he loves about you. And what is great about you, and what he's done for you, and what he's going to do in you. He's constantly speaking well of you if you are in Jesus. And that is beautiful. So love with your words. I'm just challenging you to dream about the life that you could give to someone else's soul by honoring them with your speech, mm-hmm. even when they're not there. And the last thing is to, is to love. We want to love in our thoughts. We want to love in our words. But we also want to love in our deeds. If you look at verse 13, it's very action-oriented. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. The way that we love each other involves our bodies, involves our things, involves our time, involves our space. The body of any other person is sacred to God. He created that person in his image and is deserving of deep honor and protection and to affirm that dignity. But even more so is the body, safety, and well-being of a sister or brother in Jesus. Even more reason to honor and protect that person's body. So there is a beautiful word here in this passage for those of us in romantic relationships that have access to one another's bodies. The call here is to outdo one another in showing honor to each other's bodies, to affirm the dignity of their body and yours. I'm sure that you guys could take that and imagine how that could play out for you. But more broadly... What Paul is saying here is to meet the needs, the practical, meaningful needs of your brothers and sisters. And look, you can't meet every need that someone else has. Some of you try. Uh, It's sweet to watch. (laughs) But you can meet some needs. And you probably already know what some of them are. You could include someone who is friendless. Or you could include someone who is annoying. 
to you, and especially include someone who is annoying to your friends. Um, you could lend your presence to something you don't naturally care about. You just show up. This isn't really in my wheelhouse, but I love you. I want to be here to support you. I'm just going to show up in this space and try to support you and care about where you are. He says to show hospitality. What that means is, like, you know, the church in Rome, there would have been a lot of people coming in and out, traveling there all the time. He's saying, make room in your space for these people that you don't necessarily know. So is your space, and that might be your apartment, your house, your friend group, your vehicle, your Bible study, this space that we're in tonight, or Legends in two weeks. Um, Is your space available to those who need it? Are you aware enough of their needs to know that it's available and to make it available? Or does your space give a subtle suggestion that only some are welcome and others are not? Do you work to make your space available to those in need? There's a writer, her name is Rosaria Butterfield, and I love what she says. She says, when someone becomes a Christian, you have to give them a key to your house. And what she's saying is that person becomes your relative And then you give them a key to your house because suddenly that space is available for them. And our God, the one who created each of us and saves us merely by trusting in Jesus, has made room for us in his space where he says, I want to dwell with you. Jesus shared his presence, his body, his time, his resources, his past, present, and future with his disciples. And he says he wants to do the same with you forever, including Judas. He gave them himself. And I love Paul writes in another letter to another church. He says, we loved you so much that we wanted to share with you not just the gospel, but our own selves. And that's the call for us. Are you sharing that which is yours as an act of love? And look, each of us wants to love meaningfully and to be loved. And we can only do that in a non-transactional way if we know Jesus, because in Jesus's family, there's an endless supply of love from a loving father and from a loving savior and brother, Jesus, who gave himself for us. And he's now inviting each of us to be part of that by loving each other in thought and word and in deed. Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you that you do love us indeed and that you care for us and that you think well of us. And you call us to think well of each other, to be skeptical and suspicious of ourselves. Lord, that you um, speak kind words to us, words that give life. And Lord, um, you call us to do the same, whether the person is there or not. And Lord, um, you have loved us indeed in actual hospitality and care, and you call us to do the same. Lord, teach us how to do that. That does not come naturally to us. Uh, We need you. And Lord, any of us that are struggling with that, what that means, that may even be discouraged by that, Lord, would you chase that away? And instead, give them a vision of yourself, smiling, inviting them in to know you and to know love with each other, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.